Welcome to the Climate Torch Podcast. My name is Chris Wedding, and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, startup founder, professor, impact banker, occasional monk, and founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, I launched this podcast to share positive stories of CEOs, founders, and investors tackling climate change. In these interviews, you'll learn about their high-impact companies and investment strategies, successes and failures, career paths, habits and routines for productivity and health, and recommendations on favorite books, podcasts, tools, and more. Among all the climate doom and gloom out there, I hope these discussions offer some light in the darkness and perhaps a model for what we should be passing on to the next generation. In other words, a climate torch. All right, let's get started. We are here with Bree Warner, CEO and president of Atlantic Sea Farms. And moments like this, uh, Bree, I wish we actually were uh, showing the video version where what folks cannot see, but what I can see uh, is a Halloween costume. Uh, so tis the season. Uh, I love it. Extra joy brought to the podcast, Bree. I mean, I think that's what one thing that leaders are supposed to do, right? Is right when you're in the middle of the thick of everything and your team feels underwater, try to do something that at least brings a smile to their face. And um, we have a Halloween contest coming up here in about an hour. And I have a gift certificate to the wine bar down the street for the winner. So that is such a great idea. In these climate CEO peer groups that we run through Entrepreneurs for Impact, a, a lot of times it's like, man, we are all overworked and totally stressed out. Like, how do we keep the energy going? How do we celebrate small wins? Anyway, this is a good idea. Yeah, a, a, yeah. A Halloween contest competition, yeah. And I have to say, there's someone out there that dressed as kelp, so I suspect that they will probably win the Halloween competition. Wow. Um, I'm just dressed as Mia Wallace from Pulp Fiction, which isn't quite as interesting or fun, but it's the best I could figure out. It's effective. <laughs> and very shortly, when you answer this next question, Listeners will understand why you just said somebody dressed as kelp will likely will likely <laughs> win. Thinking, what the hell? Why why is it the best costume? Anyway, lots of reasons. But uh, but with that clever segue, what do you guys do? What makes you unique versus the competition? And by the way, the competition can certainly mean others doing something similar to you or just the broken business as usual, Bree. Yeah. Yeah, so we are Atlantic Sea Farms. We're the first commercial seaweed farm in the country a few years ago, and now we are the largest seaweed, um, line-grown seaweed company in the United States. We produce over 85% of the line-grown seaweed in the United States. But that's sort of just what you might see from the outside. The piece on the inside is the reason that we're doing what we're doing, our whole reason for existing is because we live here in Maine, in the Gulf of Maine, and the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of oceans in the whole world. And our economy, the vision of the American lobsterman being a Maine lobsterman is, and you might hear hooting and hollering in the back, that's all my staff Great. celebrating costumes. Bring it on, I think. Um, bring it on, yeah. <laughs> But the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of oceans in the water. And that iconic vision that we have of Maine fishermen is very, real. We are completely dependent here on a lobster monoculture. We're the most rural state in the country. We're one of the most like oldest as far as age demographics state in the country. We're one of the poorest states in the country. But one thing that we do have is on our coast, lobster is doing well. 
And the reason it's doing well is twofold. One, the conservation ethics in, within the fishery means that it's an owner-operator fishery. Licenses can't be transferred. So everywhere else in the, in the country, if you get a license for fishing, you can sell that license. Licenses are only worth the lobster you catch. You cannot sell them. So it's a generational fishery. It is an owner-operator fishery. You must be on your boat to fish for lobster in Maine. So there's no sort of fleets. And that means everybody has an interest in the future of the industry. So while you hear all this terrible stuff like in Seaspiracy and every other movie that anyone's ever seen about fisheries of you know, fishermen really destroying the resource, here in Maine, we are actually not only conserving it, but there's a boom because of those conservation efforts. But the other the other set reason why it is lobster is doing so well is is much darker, and that's the fact that the Gulf of Maine is warming so fast, and that confluence of currents from the Arctic ice melt is actually creating a situation in Maine where it is prime breeding territory right now for Maine lobster. As the water warms about another two degrees, and those lobster babies are no longer going to be able to survive at the rate that they are. So here's the opportunity statement, right? 4,000 plus lobster license holders, all with their own boats, more coastline than the state of California, perfectly clean, cold water, great spots for aquaculture. The challenge statement is we better move quick, like real freaking quick, because that lobster industry, while good now, while people have capital now, there is a time horizon on the strength of that industry. And in the meantime, it's becoming more and more volatile. So for us, it felt very straightforward what the next step was. Or for, for me, 98% of the seaweed we eat in the United States, which is a huge category in the United States. You know, people say, why don't people eat seaweed? Well, they do. It's the, lar- it's the fastest growing category in the American grocery market for the last 10 years. You know, seaweed snacks. If anyone has kids that's listening to this that are under the age of 15, they all right here, right here. eat yeah. seaweed snacks. Um, that, that seaweed salad that everybody gets everywhere. Sushi. You can get sushi in any grocery store in America at this point. In the 90s, when we were growing up, like there was no sushi. That was the strangest thing ever back then. It's oh, yeah. everywhere. But all of it is dried and all of it is imported. And there's no controls over the quality of that. Where it's grown, it's mostly in like right in harbors. And we all know the regulation in like China and and Indonesia is not necessarily what we would want our food to be grown in. And it's super cheap because it's grown with questionable labor practices, right? So like the opportunity here to me just sort of seemed to be screaming, like, why are we not eating seaweed from here? And why are we not having fishermen farm it? It's in their off-season to lobster. They have all these boats and let's get them moving. So two years later, we now have uh, 27 farmers in the water. This is our fourth season, excuse me. So three years later, we have 27 fishermen working in the water in the winter in their lobster off-season growing kelp. And they're aquaculturists. Kelp takes carbon and nitrogen out of the water. And then we bring it in and we turn it into delicious, value-added products that make it really easy for people to eat domestic seaweed. Well, get get this girl a microphone. Oh, wait, we are right oh, here. Wait. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was very compelling. I'm all in. Sounds delicious. And, and you mentioned how it's catching on in America, what listeners couldn't see. I'm raising my hand for sure with our kids loving seaweed. I spent three years in Japan and realized gosh, seaweed doesn't just even mean one seaweed, right? Varieties of seaweed, all kinds of crazy health benefits and delicious. Bring it on. Diversify the American diet with, with health grown in Maine. It's also interesting how you unpack 
that, you know, like lobster business is booming. Oh, wait, <laughs> not booming for the best reasons. And oh, wait, a couple more degrees and that industry. And I mean, how many jobs are threatened with that? You know, nobody, the multiplier effect that people say is about three. For, so if there's mm. 4,000 plus lobster license holders, we're talking 12,000 people just directly involved in the fishing and wharf part of it. And then you have lobster processing and then you mm. have all the lobster shacks. You know, I suspect, I can't even tourism. make a guess, but, you know, yeah. we're only a, a state of 1.2 million and it is the largest industry in Maine. And, you know, just north of Portland, it's the only industry. And so these coastal communities, you know, they're very rural, 1,200 people, 1,400 people, 1,000 people. The question of the day is like, can we keep our school open? Wow. Not like, and so it just kind of for context, Stonington, Maine in 2016, they have 1,200 people, landed $65 million in lobster, just the landed value. So Whoa. we are talking the economic driver of the coast and it could disappear very quickly and completely alter the economics of the state. You know, what's interesting about this way of describing the challenge and the opportunity is it just reminds us that, you know, climate change is not some, you know, obscure, elitist environmental issue, right? I mean, look, it is an environmental issue, but boy, it is so much more as well. The future is not often as far off as, as folks think it is. I mean, I think we're seeing that in the fishery now. There's one year in 2012, for example, all the lobsters shed their shell about a month and a half early and no one was set up to take them in and the fishery collapsed. This year, the best part of the lobster season is right now. It shouldn't be right now. It should be in September. We should be fading out now. People are getting $8 at the dock. They usually get four. Last year, they were getting three fifty at the dock. Like it's so volatile. Mm -hmm. And in the past, the fishery up here has been you know, lobster, shrimp, scallops, cod. There's no cod here anymore. It's too warm. There's no shrimp, overfished, right? Mm. Like they only have one thing to rely on. And that is terrifying. Okay, so let's go from terrifying to the glass, very much half full with what you're doing, right? So maybe just talk about your, your growth. So like, what does your team look like? I don't know, kind of how you would track kind of volumes or or where, where you'll be as a team and as a business and pick a number, right? Two, three, five years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, a, you say the right thing, like going from terrifying to hope. And that's what we mm. want to provide the right. coast is hope. Like, I think that's the thing with climate change stories. And I was talking to a, a reporter about this the other day when they were asking us about, they want to do a climate change series. And I said, that is so great please end it with what people are doing to adapt mm. to climate change or mitigate would be even better, but adapt at the very least. And the, the story that we are, are telling and the story that is absolutely like part of our everyday is people who are adapting to climate change. And these aren't the people that you would think of, of like, these are not climate warriors. These are people who see what is going on in the water and most of them are not politically on the left, um, to say the least, but they look at the water and they know it is changing and they need to do something about it. And we meet people where they are and we don't talk about climate change. We talk about diversification mm -hmm. and we don't talk about the fact that kelp helps remove carbon and nitrogen from the mm -hmm. water and locally mitigate some of the effects of climate change. 
But in two years after farming with us, they're like, tell me about this carbon thing. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And these like right now, kelp is the best single food you can eat as far as its impact on the environment. There's no inputs. There's no arable land. There's no fresh water. There's no, I mean, it's, we have a nursery that's done with seawater and then it goes out into the ocean and then it sits in the ocean and then it all comes back in. And in the meantime, it helps provide ecosystems for marine mammals that helps strengthen shell strength, removes carbon and nitrogen, all that. And then you eat it and it's got tons of iodine, calcium, potassium, like omega-3s, right? So like it's the best thing you can eat and lobstermen are the ones leading that charge. So Mm -hmm. at our company, everything we do is driven toward getting more fishermen in the water. And in order to get more fishermen in the water, we need to drive and grow demand for our products. So we started with a line of products that is for food service and retail, and they're mostly, they're all fresh kelp products, which you can't get because we're like, okay, we can't, we're not going to compete with dried imported products that are like mm-hmm. pennies. Um, let's compete in a totally value added, delicious new market where we can forge a totally new market. And so we started with food service um, and we had some incredible partnerships with like Sweet Green and David Chang, Be Good Burger Chain, where they were putting our seaweed-based kimchi on their burgers. We were a little beet who was using our kelp puree in their dressing and on their salads, you know, just basically ways that we can get kelp on everything and get people to try it. Obviously with COVID, a lot of those restaurants shut down. So we had to recalibrate. And there's this like picture from the New York times where uh, it shows how empty Times Square is. And there's this billboard of chef David Chang holding up our kelp saying, eat kelp at Sweet green and showing the empty time square, nice. like yeah. just the kick in the gut that we needed. Um, mm-hmm. So we recalibrated and we launched our retail brand, which is all products that are very easy to use. You can either stick a fork into and eat it or put it in a blender, like our kelp cubes for smoothies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And they're all ready to eat. Everything is fresh and it's now at 1400 stores across the country, including Whole Foods, Sprouts. Yes. We have a launch of a new product line in January that's going out to Sprouts, which is a blueberry ginger kelp cube and a cranberry kelp cube for people's smoothies. So what we're really trying to do is say like kelp doesn't have to be like it can be on everything and it can be there because it's it tastes good. It's very good for you and it's regenerative in the truest sense, not just like regenerative, like grass-fed cows, but like actually truly regenerative. It makes the the environment better when it's grown and eaten. So, you know, I think that's, that's sort of where we're headed is just keep driving this demand, keep creating delicious, easy to use products and get them out to people to try and build that demand and get more people in the water. But as a result, every time someone eats some of our kelp, they're getting, they're directly supporting a fisherman. Mm. And that's, you know, that that's the whole, we're for profit, but you know, they are too, and they're making money and they, you know, their faces are on the back of our jars. Their faces are on the back of our boxes. There are family members, like quite literally, there are family Mm. members. We have our our CMO's dad um, is a fisherman and he's part of our farmer network. And these guys and gals are, you know, they mean everything to us. And, and we're just really excited to provide, to build a market for what they're growing. Yeah. That's, that's really inspiring. Just going back a few, a few threads there on the reporter kind of doing the story on climate change and you kind of insisting, right? Hey, look, as, as I hear it, we're glad to be a part of this, but you got to end on a positive note, right? You got to tell positive stories about solutions and adaptation. And as we, you know, commented before press and record, I mean, that's really the whole purpose of the Climate Torch podcast is 
man, plenty of doom and gloom if you want to focus on doom and gloom or yeah. the, the kind of day-to-day -day that I think both of us have super inspiring, right? Yeah, and that's I, exactly right. I hope it's eyes wide open, but nonetheless, it's it's very inspiring to think about solutions like this all all day long. I, I think I think you use yeah. a really good word there, though, Chris, is inspiring, because what we want to do is inspire people to take action. And you can't scare people into taking action. Mm -mm. Scaring people will never result in positive action. When people work from a place of fear, they act from a place of fear. And we need to be working from a place of hope, hope that we can actually change things. And that's not to say that we need to sugarcoat stories. I mean, the future is terrifying if we don't do something. But if people don't know how they can help and how and aren't inspired by others to make measurable actions to help, then how are they supposed to know what to do? Mm, yeah, so true. I also want to stress to listeners, you all made this decision to go from B to B to, I, I think, B to C and to go from, you know, in lots of ways, selling a, a more, a raw, more pure form of kelp versus these value add products. And it just kind of tying that together with you saying, look, we don't want to, nor should we compete with the very cheap stuff out of Asia that's dried. I think it's it's a great example of, of good strategy, right? To say you shouldn't compete with the high volume, low cost, high negative impact product, create your own way to get to market, right? Direct to consumer right. or value add uh, products. That's right. Well, yeah. and also just sort of, it's always amazed me that like, we only eat dried seaweed and then people are supposed to soak it and cut it up and eat it as seaweed salad. Like that sounds insane to me. Like that's like soaking a kale chip and then putting it and saying like, now it's a salad. It mm -hmm. does, just because you unhydrate kale doesn't mean it tastes like fresh kale. Mm -hmm. So we just take fresh stuff and we ferment it naturally and deliciously into a fermented seaweed salad, for example, nice. um, or blanch it and, and puree it and turn it into smoothie cubes or blanch it and shred it and turn it into a salad topper that, you know, or a soup topper and it's fresh. And the difference in taste is significant because you're not reconstituting something. Mm. You're just taking something that's super fresh. And we still have a whole ingredient channel. We're now starting to work with companies like oh, yeah. doing a sauce with our products. Oh, great. Someone's doing, you know, nutraceuticals, subbing in the Asian product with our, like a dried version of our kelp because the heavy metal content in the Asian product is so high. Wow. You know, people are using it in chips, people are using it in puffs, people are using it everywhere. And then we also have our CPG brand. So it's been, you know, we someone just came out with like, dog treats with kelp in them, like, cause they want dogs to eat kelp, right? It's just this amazing, you can put it in anything and it mm. tastes great. And it adds the sustainability component to people's products. So, you know, our hope as a business is like kelp on everything and make it our kelp. And it doesn't even have to have our name on it. Just mm. get more guys and gals in the water farming kelp and you use it in your products everywhere. I love it. Let's go to the next question here, which is how have you funded your growth? whether it's outside capital or whether it's, you know, through through revenue or or strategic partners. So that's part one. And then maybe related part two, is there a lesson or two you might share with the audience on, you know, how to find and or attract the right kind of capital to grow your business? We've been very lucky because we are the only ones doing what we're doing. And because there's no skeletons in the closet here, we're not greenwashing anything. This is all true and real for better, or for worse. We live this every day and doing everything the hard way. 
we have had a lot of people interested in what we're doing, which is great. Having said that, a lot of the people that were interested in working with us were interested to either A, make their portfolio, kind of greenwash their own portfolio, which we weren't interested in doing, or two, we're sort of climate change, you know, carbon seekers. We are very against the idea that like one food is going to change the world. Like, oh, if you have massive kelp farms and then we're going to take all the carbon out of the water. It's like, no, the only thing that's going to take all the carbon out is changing our habits every day. And kelp can locally mitigate the effects of climate change, but then you eat it, right? Like we don't permanently store carbon in our bodies. And there are so many positive effects about it. I'm not going to also go out there and say things like we're going to completely reverse climate change. And you'll see those headlines everywhere. Kelp is going to change climate. Kelp is going to do this. It's like, no, kelp is a climate-friendly vegetable. And that is amazing. And that's has no inputs. And it's helping people adapt to climate change. And cut. it's the best food you can eat. Like, why do we need to blow it up from there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third group of folks that came to us that we weren't interested in working with are people who saw this as a CPG exit opportunity. All right, let's get in. Let's grow the supply chain. And then let's sell it. Mm. You know, that's not to say that someday we wouldn't be interested in in partnering with a larger business to potentially grow this thing even further, but not until we've, number one, proven that this, this works, and number two, so thoroughly built this supply chain in, is totally inefficient, but also totally necessary supply. You know, it's inefficient in some ways, but very efficient in other ways of having individual owner operators selling kelp. We give them free seed. People are like, why should, why don't you charge for seed? I'm like, yeah, well, you're not someone I want to work with. And we buy everything back that they grow because we are the only buyers in the United States. And if we do not promise that these people are vulnerable and it isn't fair and it's not how we're going to run a business. So all of those things, once all of that is so permanently ingrained and we're successful with all of that, then we can have that conversation. But my first step is how do we make, I went with the investors who are asking, how do we make this model so wildly successful that it it sets the tone for other people, not only entering seaweed, but also sets the tone for how you can grow a business responsibly, a food Mm. business responsibly and with integrity and change the way that people think about how to grow their supply chain. And when, when people were asking me that, then I was super excited to talk to them with how we could partner. Mm. And I was lucky enough to be able to have those people involved in the company. So we've had several rounds of investment from people just like that. I just expanded my board or not expanded. I just added new board members, had some folks phase off. That includes people like Jason Jones, who was the co-founder of Vital Farms and folks from like Desert Bloom, which is a venture fund that's focused on businesses that are not just like 1% for the planet, but are 100% for the planet and mm-hmm. the growth right. they do. And they're not impact investors. They are people who truly believe that the best business decision is to do right by the environment and the people that work in your business. So I was very lucky to get those. And I would just say to any entrepreneur, if you have any skepticism about the investor that is looking at your company, it's better not to move forward. You do not want to get in bed or start a marriage with a fund or with investors that are going to push you to do things that are outside of the ethics of your company or who aren't seeing the bigger picture. And if you're just like a straight company, that's like, okay, I'm starting a, you know, not to pick on anyone in particular, but like canned coffee 
at a co-packer. I don't care where the coffee's coming from, but I think it tastes really cool and we'll do it with a co-packer and then we'll sell this business. Like, that's great. Then you don't really have to worry who the investor is because like, great, just take the money in and make it happen. But if you're looking to make more of a fundamental change to the way that people run a food system and the way that people eat, you need people who are going to be patient and people who are going to be adaptable and people who are ready to roll their sleeves up and figure out a way to navigate an entirely new way of doing business. Mm. You know, they, they say that um, founders should have some conviction. <laughs> I think we hear plenty of that a healthy dose of conviction. <laughs> I love it. I can almost see the faces of those investors who wanted to invest for those three reasons. You didn't want them like, what, what are you talking about? We have all these millions of dollars. You're supposed to say yes. If we, if we have, have interest in investing, <laughs> Well, good for you. Yeah. And for I you. always kind of said, I don't think seaweed's for you. Like, and I sort of convinced them out of it. I'm like, we're not going to be where you want us to be in two years, but we're mm. going to be beyond where you want us to be in seven years. Mm. And seaweed is not canned coffee. It is not a potato chip. We are the potato chip seed manufacturer. We're the potato farmer. We're the transportation company that moves those potatoes we are also the technical assistance organization that helps farm mm. additionally with that. We are also the processors, the manufacturers, the sellers, and the marketers. So like, if you're looking for a potato chip company, <laughs> it's a right. totally different beast. Right, right, right. That's great. What, what a breadth, right, of ways to, to add value and create certainty for those fishermen. Let's switch a little bit. If you had to start over, not that we're asking you to, if you had to start over, are there one or two things you would do differently to be, I don't know, uh, faster, more effective, et cetera? I think I would have, I have this like amazing team of people and they're so good that I never gave them help as far as more people. It's like, oh, um, you know, this is, this is such a great company. There's so many great people. You know, everyone's doing such a good job. Keep going. And then we all looked up at one point and, you know, we were all just working our tails off, not getting paid very much, wondering if we could make it to tomorrow, if we were, you know, if we had the fortitude to kind of get up again. And people mm -hmm. were exhausted, including myself. You know, I name all those areas of the business. They all report to me and there's no... COO and there's no CFO and <laughs> we just did it. We just hand, you know, we bootstrapped it. And, you know, this last group of investors that came on these like very mission forward folks, they basically said like, we are so excited to invest and here are some of the conditions like, yeah, right. you gotta like double your team. <laughs> Mm. And they're like, because you guys aren't going to be able to do what you're doing and you're not, you know, you all can't survive this. And I think if I would have changed anything, I would have hired faster. Everyone's still here. No one's left. But I think they're all just seeing all of the people and how excited they are to have more folks come on and really qualified folks and picking it up and how much more effective they are when they're not doing 10 jobs. Right. But it's no good deed goes unpunished. They were all so good that none of us really thought to bring on more people. So that's what I would say to all entrepreneurs, like bring people on before you need them, actually. Well, I think, yeah, I hear that. So so hire faster and don't let, you know, great, effective team members convince you or convince themselves they got this, right? Because yeah. as I covered in a podcast yesterday, 
look, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? You got to have that endurance to keep to keep going strong. Exactly. That's the one thing I would have done differently. Okay. Again, stepping outside your current box for a second, if you had to pick another sector that addresses climate change, let's say, is there one or two that are interesting to you? And if so, what, what might that look like? So, I mean, one cheat of an answer that I'll give is shellfish. And I say that as a cheat and answer because I recognize it's it's not all that dissimilar of a sector. But we work with uh, several of our partner farmers who started to deploy muscle lines and muscle rafts, you know, bivalves, clean the water, they, or they filter the water. They also have like, they have permanent carbon sequestration when you throw out those shells and put them in the, in the dumps, like that actually sequesters carbon. And they're one of the most efficient foods to grow, similar to seaweed. And they use no arable land, no fresh water, no inputs. I mean, they're just, bivalves are an incredible, incredible ocean-friendly product. And I get really excited about the growth of the aquaculture sector in the United States and how much that can truly help alleviate and take the pressure off some of the need that people see to eat protein every night, you know, like animal proteins. Mm. If we're going to continue to eat animal proteins in the level that we are, we should really consider the bivalve. And that's going to give you all those nutrients and more and omegas and be better for the environment. So that's, I understand that's a cheat, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um. <laughs> I like it. I wouldn't call it a cheat. I think, you know, that's that's a, a kind of a protein source discussion versus a, you know, a vegetable, if you will. Yeah. With, with kale. I also think there's a beautiful soundbite in there, right? Like if we're going to keep eating meat, let's go with the bivalve, right? There's, a, there's like a, there's a bumper sticker there somewhere. The bivalve is like yeah, what I'm right. always saying. That's right. That's right. <laughs> How about on the, on the personal side, Bree? So we talked about the business stuff a little bit on the personal side of their habits or routines that keep you, you know, sane, healthy, focused, et cetera. Yeah. I, I am pretty strict about being home at five 30. I have two children. And I will not miss their childhood. It would be very easy to do that, quite frankly. It's mm. busy. But I make it so I'm home at 5.30 every day unless there's a night event. Like an event, that's one thing. But if it's just a normal work day, I'm home at 5.30. If that means they go to bed early because they're babies, they're three, they're four and five. So if they are, you know, they go to bed by at 7.30, which means after they get up 14 times, um, it's usually 8.15 <laughs> by the time they're down. And then I open my computer again and I do work. And mm. will I say that makes for like the healthiest of marriages or um, <laughs> the least burnout? No, but the most refreshing thing I can think of to do, it's not, you know, people would say like exercise and sleep. Like, yes, they're both important. Seeing my kids is even more important to me. And those two or three hours where I put my phone, I leave my phone in my coat because it's Maine. So you only have like two months where you don't have a coat. I leave my phone in my coat in the mudroom when I come home. I say mudroom, like that sounds like such a main thing. We all have mudrooms up here and I'm not from here. Um, and that used to, now I say it as if it's like the thing that everyone has. You right. leave it in the mudroom and then you come in and I don't touch it again until after they're asleep. And if someone from work really, really needs me, they can call my husband and <laughs> let me know. But like, I just, I need those two or three hours with my mm. beautiful little boys to really focus on them. And, you know, yeah, I don't get to exercise as much as I'd like. I don't get to sleep as much as I'd like, but I feel really refreshed because I get the time with them. Well, I, I heard two boys age four and five, and I heard mudroom. 
which that makes a ton of sense. Let's just say um, <laughs> we've got two boys. They're teenagers now and one little girl. But yes, lots of lots of dirt. Actually, dirt for all the kids, not just the dirt boys. from every. And I have to yeah. say, I, I'm I'm almost the worst culprit. I have like my oil gear and my like stinky boots and like everything just hanging up in there. And then we have uh, chickens. We have a big farm. We have a like not farm. We have a garden. We have chickens. Mm. We have like a seven acre plot. It's it's beautiful. And there's mud everywhere. Right. Well, I, I can relate to the practice of, hey, I'm stopping work early. I'm going to be there with the family. And then when everyone's asleep, then, you know, if I need to, I'll open the laptop back up for a little bit. For me, it was like, you know, working in private equity for a lot of years. That wasn't really an option. But when I became an entrepreneur and, you know, had plenty of struggles to go along with that, one of the perks was, all right, well, I, I control my schedule. So here, here on that, that is a perk is to control your schedule. Yeah. And it sets the tone for everyone here. There is no one who thinks it's brave to sit here till six o'clock till everybody leaves or mm. seven o'clock or whatever. Like they'll stay if they have to, if, especially during nursery season, when we're doing all of our kelp cultivation, like you do it until all the tasks get done. But there's, you know, I remember I was, I was a diplomat before I came back to Maine. And I remember just that feeling of like, you can't leave early. The boss is still here. Mm. And God, that that's an insidious yep. work culture that has been propagated throughout corporate America. And the boss sets the tone. And I also set the tone of you better get your work done. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, yeah, you want to go surfing? Cool. Come in when you're done. Like, I don't care. We have winter surfing is a big thing here, which is insane to me. But you know, our sustainability manager puts on his calendar the days that the waves are going to be good. And he said, Casey may be late. That's all it says on his calendar. <laughs> wow. And I know it just means it's a good wave day. And that's yeah. great. He's, he's yeah. so good and he'll get all the work done. So come in when you get in and then stay till when you need to. And like, go have, an, and then I'll ask you how the waves were. Cause that's yeah. great. It's also four degrees and you're really stupid for going out there, but like, here's an area heater. Let's go. And I, I just feel like we as leaders need to set the tone for how we want other people to live their lives too. And, and mm. we can give people the permission to be both present and focused while they're here and also live their full lives. Because mm. if they're not living their full lives, they're not going to come up, come here and be present. Not for long, right? Nope. Yeah, I, I really resonate with everything you just said, except for winter surfing in Maine. Yeah, it's awful. I wouldn't do it. I'm I'm not that stupid. Yeah. Well, we have we have just three more questions here, and then we'll let you get to your your Halloween party. The next one is: Are there any recommendations for books, podcasts, tools, etc., that you or your team find really helpful in this in this journey? Yeah, I think um, you know I'm gonna say something that first is a little wonky, and then I can talk about two others. But the first one is called the Lobster Coast, and I'd recommend it to all of your readers because I think something that we don't realize about the food system is that it's not been created in our lifetime. You know, it, it, people have stopped appreciating how history plays into where we are now, and what we need to do to unravel that. Our food system, as we all know, is just fundamentally broken at its core. And The Lobster Coast is this beautiful book basically written about how we got here in Maine to be the Lobster Coast. But while it's specifically about Maine, it's also about, you know, just in general, you can apply it to anywhere of like, oh, like we got here for a reason and we need to kind of understand the systemic causes of why we are where we are in order to start thinking about unraveling them. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one that everybody has to read when they start here. 
And then there's another like seaweed foraging handbook that everybody has here. Nice. I would just recommend to your listeners because it's fun and interesting. And if anyone lives near a coast or is going to visit a coast, just identifying the seaweeds that are out there and understanding it's all edible, but like what's good, what's not, what's <laughs> fun, what you can cook up in your own kitchen. And then the other book, like the management book that we often use here is called The Culture Code. And I do, the name of the author is escaping me at the moment, but it's basically about how you can create a culture of trust and resilience within your team. And it's also a mandatory read when people come in. So it's basically about giving your coworkers the benefit of the doubt and trust and honoring people's values and honoring people's commitments and recognizing that we all fall short and not taking it personally, but instead working to figure out okay, you're, you're struggling here. So how can I help you not struggle? It was not just as a leader, but everybody within the organization working that way. I love, love, love that you have three required readings for your team. I mean, talk about literally being on the same page. Yeah, that's right. We are very much on the same page and we call it team nice too. I mean, I'm like, Everyone that when we're interviewing for a number of different positions right now, because like I said, we're finally beefing up the team. And when we get off, it's not like we're like, you know, they're very competent is obviously number one. But if they don't seem nice Mm. next, Mm. like I don't want, I don't want jerks here. I don't Mm. want jerks in my supply chain and I don't want jerks here. And I think, I think some of the benefits of that is being a woman led company. We can think of things a little bit differently. Well, again, team nice sounds awesome. I think it's it's a it's another way of saying like the, the no asshole rule, except that yeah. that's like the downside, right? And then there's somewhere in the there's a big middle, and then there's the upside, the positive interpretation of well, not just like not just neutral, but like you know, nice, proactively yeah. being nice. Uh, that's be nice. that's a good reframe. It's a good yeah. Reframe. Well, I mean, this is not easy, so we better be nice to each other. Good segue. Let's stick with the word nice. The last real question here is, again, kind of out in left field, but delightfully so. What is one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for you outside of your family? So it pertains to this business, actually. And I think, like I said, I'm not from Maine, but the motto up here is the way life should be. That's what people say, Maine, the way life should be. And I always thought that was so cheesy. My husband's from here. And I was just like, Oh my God, you Mainers, like where your <laughs> life should be. Like, what kind of ego is that? Like, come on, it's cold. It's rural. There's nothing to do like the way life should be. Come on. And I have completely rethought that after being here eight years. And I'll tell you why. And this is on the niceness side of things is I, you know, got into this business. I took, I'm, I'm not a founder. It started in 2009 as just two small ocean farms, two small few farms, uh, sea farms. And I took over in 2000, end of 2018 um, as CEO after a founder transition and completely, you know, rebranded, hired an all new staff and then started directing it toward fishermen farming, not us farming, because I thought that's how we would have the most impact. And so I'm a woman who has never been in seafood who is suddenly, you know, I've been working with the lobster fishery for about seven years on and off in economic development, but not as like, you know, in the business side, it was on the nonprofit side. And in any other place, in any other state, I would imagine that would not be held well. This person who's coming in here and being like, hey, I need you to farm algae and trust me on this. And they knew me from a number of years and said, okay, like, let's try it. And I found three leaders in the industry that just 
did it. And they had no mm. reason to trust me other than that they knew me. They had no reason to think it was going to work. And they put in time and money in their own farms. You know, they got leases, they got in and we were out there setting their moorings. We were out there tying their lines. You know, I hired um, someone to kind of, that was very, very skilled with that stuff and was out there doing all of that. And I was like, we're going to sell this stuff. And they did it and they trusted me. And now we have 27 because it worked and they talked mm. about it. And along the way, like, shit, we don't have a freezer. What are we going to do? Like our freezer's not where, I mean, our freezer broke down and you call up like Bristol seafood, which is a huge seafood company here and say like, Hey, can we take over your freezer for four days? And the answer is pretty sure. We're going to figure out how to make it happen. Mm. Or like Luke Holden from Luke's lobster, like, Hey, I have my board coming in town. Like maybe we could grab long dinner at Luke's sure. Full spread sits down with you know, all of our board, like the whole team sits down, like borrowing boats, like from people, like everybody is here to support us because they trust us and because we trust them. And mm -hmm. you just see these, like, we've had people from the seafood industry visit us from elsewhere. And we like go out to dinner with like six people from different businesses that run seafood companies. And they're like, oh, you guys are all friends. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I think so that's not one instance. It's just constantly floored by the kindness and the support for doing what we're doing, which no one has ever done before. And never have I heard here, this can't be done. I've always heard, this is really exciting. Let's figure out how we can do it together. And they have yeah. no stake in our company other than they wanna see it succeed. That it is heartwarming. I, I would also just say outside looking in, if I'm the fisherman, like, you know, you're convincing, but you also have the interest of not just your company, but of, of the community. Right. So I think they, they see that, right. You're not a typical, yeah. you know, business person. Yeah, I well, think so too. Where should folks go to find obviously more about you all, but, but to buy some of these products, Brie? Yeah. So they can go online on our where to buy page to see where local store is around them. We're mostly by coastal, but Whole Foods, pretty much nationally sprouts in every one of their stores and sprouts. They carry our kelp cubes and our ready cut kelp. And in January, they'll be launching our blueberry ginger kelp cubes and our cranberry kelp cubes. And then Whole Foods has our fermented seaweed salad. And in the two Northeast region, Northeast and New England regions, they also have our sea chee and our fermented sea beet kraut. And so definitely run out there and grab those and you know, keep an eye on our website and on the news. We have some really exciting launches with different restaurant groups and other CPG companies coming up soon. Well, super exciting. This has been a great, great chat. I look forward to the next one. And Brie, we're all rooting for your success, even non-Mainers rooting for your own success up there. <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much. Oh, and I should say that the website is AtlanticSeafarms.com. I realized I didn't say the actual website. So, um, but thank you for having me on, Chris. It's really fantastic to see you highlighting these positive stories and entrepreneurship. And, you know, we all need hope at this time in the world. And I'm just so honored to be invited on your show and, and just think your guests are fantastic. Well, you, you delivered, you brought hope, Bree. All right. <laughs> talk soon. Talk soon. Thank you for joining us on the Climate Torch podcast. We appreciate your time and we know how valuable it is. If you want to learn more about climate finance, startups, productivity hacks, and occasional blurbs on things like stoicism or meditation or conscious leadership, all with attempts, underscore attempts, at humor and levity, then please consider subscribing to our weekly newsletter called Zero, 
which you'll find on Substack or the Entrepreneurs for Impact website. Or if you are a scale-up stage climate CEO or investor looking for a peer group to share best practices, expand your network, scale your business, and not be so lonely at the top, then check out our Climate Mastermind program at Entrepreneurs for Impact. Finally, if you want to draw more attention to world-changing climate CEOs, founders, and investors, then I encourage you to subscribe, follow, or rate this podcast. That, of course, makes it easier for new listeners to find and be inspired by these stories. All right, until next time, let's get back to launching ventures and growing businesses tackle climate change.